we, uh, <clears throat> as I said, had a special time on Wednesday. And I got to tell you, on Trunk or Treat Week, it's hard to recover from that. That was a really long day. I don't know if some of you use trackers, but at like 10 o'clock in the morning, I had 10,000 steps in already. That's, that's not looking good. By the end of the day, I think it was something like 26,000 steps. And my Fitbit's beeping at me, you just earned a new medal. And I'm like, oh, cool, what's that? You know, I don't, I don't really pay attention. The Minion medal. How does Minion, what does Minions got to do with 26,000 steps? Because they have short legs and they have to take, I don't understand. But anyway, it was an exhausting day, but there were some really cool things that came out of that. One of our members, is Phil here this morning? Phil's probably out hunting for something today. Uh, Phil Saitar was here for the very first time, his very first trunk or treat. We've been doing these, I don't know, since 2013, I think, at least. And Phil showed up. He said, this is the first time I've ever been to this. I usually avoid this like the plague. I'm like, Phil, why? I didn't, I didn't probe into that. I think we need to go a little deeper into that conversation. But anyway, he said, man, this was awesome. And so what does Mark do? Phil's on the parking crew. So Mark puts the only vest that we have that has red blinking lights on it, gives him a, a light wand and says, go stand in the middle of the street and stop cars. It's like, way to get baptism by fire. And somebody almost ran him over, flew by him at 100 miles an hour, and Phil's like this, and the other guy gestured in a way somewhat inappropriate and kept on moving. But anyway, you're always going to have that. But anyway, Phil uh, came to me afterwards. He says, yeah, I've I've never come to one of these before. And he said, now I actually feel kind of guilty about it because it was so awesome. And so I'm like, good. That's the feeling we want people to get. I hope all of you that did come had a great time and, and more than that, had the opportunity to build some relationships or renew some relationships with some of the people that you hadn't seen in a while that maybe came through. I believe we had 800 trick-or-treaters, which, you know, equals out to probably somewhere around 1,500, 1,600 people. I don't know. We don't really count them, but several people did count how many treats they gave out. So it was great. We enjoyed it immensely. And I found out something. Some of you don't know this. Greg, Monica, does have texting on his phone. Uh, For those of you, some of you don't know Greg, but just trust me, I've texted Greg a thousand times, never got a response because he doesn't text. I finally got it through my head. He doesn't text. I'm not texting him. Well, he told me during the event, I took, he says, I took a whole bunch of pictures of everybody. I'm going to try to figure out how to send them to you. So as I'm here, still cleaning stuff up, all of a sudden my phone starts to go bing, 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 bing. You know, and I'm looking at my phone. I saw some pictures from Greg Monica. How about that? He can text. Actually, it was his wife doing it on his phone. But anyway, so I'm looking at these pictures and I start texting, wow, these are great, thank you. I get halfway through it, bing, 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 bing. Take a guess how many pictures he sent me via text message through his phone. Take a guess. Nope, higher. Nope, lower. 99! (laughs) To me and Jenny. For two hours straight, our phones were both bing, bing, bing. Oh my goodness, it was awesome though. He got some great shots and now I know Greg does get messages, he just won't answer them. So anyway, it was a great night and we had a lot of fun. Um, Let's move on. We started two weeks ago in a series where we're working our way through the book of 1 John. And again, if you haven't been here, I always like to kind of give this. If you're looking for 1 John (laughs) in an app, punch in 1 John, for crying out loud, because it'll pop right up. If you have a Bible, though, if you have the old paper version, which some of us still use, um, it's way toward the back, kind of a couple books before Revelation. It's not too hard to find, even though it's not very big. Just look for Revelation, then go back a few pages, and you'll probably find 1, 2, and 3 John, Jude, 
and then Revelation follows that. But anyway, we've been walking our way through 1 John. And 1 John takes us on a journey um, of, from questioning into clarity. And, and, and clarity is what John helped the people of his day to find in a time where there were teachers and preachers and other influences around them in society that were clouding their judgment and causing them to have questions that maybe they'd never asked before. Now, the first week, we opened up the book. We, we kind of looked at the introduction where John gives us a synopsis of what, or of, of who, rather, Jesus is and what he means to us. And, and I told you, he kind of, it's almost like John's giving this grand introduction of Jesus. Well then, last week we talked about how John explained sin and its influence in our lives because some of the teachers that were coming and teaching the people that he was writing to had inappropriate views of what sin was or, or whether or not it impacted them. And so we learned that sin does in fact impact our relationship with God. Sin is a hindrance in our relationship with God. That's why Jesus died, so that our sins could be forgiven. But if we continue in sin, it is still a hindrance to our relationship with God. And so John writes, you know, very frankly, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But then he also goes on to say, if you do, you have a, a, a um, you have a, what's the word I'm looking for? A mediator. You have a mediator, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Anyway, so we talked about how sin does impact our relationship with God. The second thing was that sin is a part of our nature, whether we want to admit it or not. Uh, again, my example is and always will be, if you don't believe people are born with a sin nature, go to a preschool class and watch for about 10 minutes, and you will see all of the seven deadly sins happening there. Probably not the seven deadly sins, but you'll see some selfishness, some greed, some all of those things. Hopefully not witchcraft. We're hoping not that young, but anyway, you will see some of those things happen, and again, I know it, you know, toddlers, they, they seem so innocent and so nice, but man, can they be nasty uh, to each other. But anyway, and, and ironically, adults nowadays seem to be more free to be nasty to each other either. Anybody else noticing that? Uh, especially since the instance of social media. Anyway, so sin, we do have a sin nature, and beyond that, if you claim that even though you have a sin nature, you have not sinned, he said you're a liar. We each and every one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3.23 says. So none of us are perfect, and again, I challenge you, if you think you're perfect, talk to someone who knows you pretty well, and they will share with you some examples of how you are not. Um, and you may argue with them, but if it's your spouse, I don't recommend it. Anyway, moving on. So we talked about those two things. Now we're going to kind of get into the body of the text, and what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks are three tests that John gives us to determine whether we are or are not um, actually a follower in good standing with Jesus. Now again, this isn't about trying to determine whether we're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. The whole issue here is determining where our relationship with Jesus is because Christianity is not about being in or out. It's about being in a relationship with God that is growing and moving and developing every single day as we learn to become more like Him, more like Jesus, each and every day of our lives. And so it's not about legalism, but what John essentially does is he gives us three tests to determine whether or not we're in good standing. And by doing this, he's giving them a way that they can know whether or not they are following Jesus in a way that is appropriate or whether they have gone off on a tangent with some of these false teachers. Now, I want to say something quickly about the order of these very quickly. And again, for those of you that weren't here the last couple weeks, this is going to be kind of more like a Bible study than a sermon. So if you got your Bible, feel free to open it up and be ready. As we look at these three tests, 
what John does is he kind of introduces one, and then he goes on and introduces the next one, and then he goes on and introduces the next one, and then later in the passage, he circles back and reemphasizes the first one, and then reemphasizes the second one, and so on and so forth, and for at least one of the things, he does that three times. And so he basically introduces them, but then in the process of going through the rest of them, he circles back and touches on them again. And so the way that I'm going to kind of handle these is we're going to talk about one at a time and kind of follow that text all the way through. So we're not going to go sequentially per se, but we're going to follow everything that talks about that particular test, text in one week rather than going through all three of them and then all three of them again because a lot of what he adds on is just food for thought and, and it kind of re-emphasizes what he's already said. But I do want to say something about the order in which they're presented. If you look at the scripture, John's three tests are obedience, which is the moral test, love, which is the social test, and believe, believing or belief, which is the doctrinal test. Now, in the scripture, they're in that order. He first introduces the idea of obedience, then he goes on to talk about love, and then he goes on to talk about belief, okay? So he puts those tests in that order. Interestingly enough, the commentator that I've been leaning into pretty heavily as I study this book has decided to change the order of these, tech, of, of these tests, and for whatever reason, he's decided that the belief test should be first, the doctrinal test. The uh, uh, obedience test or the moral test will be second, and then love will take third place. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, well, there's probably a reason for that. Maybe the guy wanted to deal with the one who had the most written about it first or something. Or maybe in his mind, it's just the way that the sequence rolls because of something he's going later. He, you know, he's, he's a writer. He's an intellectual. He's probably up to something. There's probably some punchline that he's going to give us down the road. But here's what I think about commentators. I think they can be very, very helpful. Now, I recognize that most of you don't have a context for commentator when it comes to the scripture because many of you probably haven't read a commentary. How many of you have bought a commentary and read it once in a while? Okay, there's a few of you. That's great. A commentator basically is someone who talks about something that you may not know that much about to explain it to you. The most um, probably obvious example of this is a football game, baseball game, soccer game, basketball game. How many of you like to watch sports on TV? Raise your hand if you like to watch sports. How many of you like to listen to the commentator tell you what just happened? How many of you recognize they sometimes get it wrong? I, I, I frequently, it seems like today more than ever, I'll watch a football game, and the commentator's like, oh yeah, he clearly made that catch, and we're watching the replay as he's saying that, and he clearly did not make the catch. Or the commentator is leaning in the direction of one team or the other. How many of you hate that with a passion? Oh my goodness. When I lived in Ohio, and Aaron can kind of identify with this, when I lived in Ohio, the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry was alive and well, baby. And to be honest, I wasn't even really a Michigan fan until I moved to Ohio. And in the midst of all that Ohio-ness, I had to stand firm. So I became one. But anyway, there was a good friend of mine down there. His name was Rick. And he has since gone on to be with the Lord. And he was a serious Ohio State fan. His dog's name was Brutus. His last name was Gray. And he tried to get his daughter-in-law and son to name their daughter, the first daughter that was born as a grandchild, he tried to get them to name her Scarlet Ann. Think about it for a minute. Second phase, people, you're about to get it. It's coming. 
you know. Scarlet and gray, yeah, he tried. They didn't do it, thankfully, but, you know, he tried. This guy, if they lost, wouldn't come to church. Like, he'd be home depressed in his chair. He'd just sit there. Anyway, but he, he used to um, invite us over because during the time we lived down there, most of the time, Ohio State was better than Michigan. So we went down there, and they would invite us over. It was a, all a circle of friends that we really liked, and they would invite us over to their Ohio State-Michigan games so that they could gloat right? And so we would go over to the games, and Rick was crazy. He would turn on the television, and if one particular announcer happened to be announcing the game, he would say, shut off the sound, and he'd go get his radio, and he would set the radio next to the TV and hope that they synced up. Like, sometimes they didn't, and I got to tell you, it was really annoying, you know? But he would literally get a radio in there and listen to a completely different commentator because that guy's tilted in the direction of that team up north. And he hated it. And I'm like, seriously, dude, just get over it. But I understand that there are times when a commentator may or may not be giving you just the facts. Now, it's very helpful for me when I'm watching football to have a commentator who can explain the plans and the schemes and and what this person did and what that did and how the blocking works and how everything works together because even though I've coached a little bit of football, I only coached one skill at a time. I don't get the larger picture, and so it's, it's helpful. Just like it's helpful when I open the scripture to be able to look at what someone else has written, especially someone who's probably dedicated their life to studying the scripture, probably knows 13 Semitic languages, and has three doctorate degrees on the subject. That's usually where commentators are at in their headspace. And so it's helpful to hear what they have to say, but sometimes, as in football, their little bit of personal prejudice comes through. And I think in this text, and not necessarily in a really bad way, I think in this text, this personal preference of this commentator kind of took over for a minute, and he decided to reorder these items in the order that he deemed them most important to least important. And and the first one that he said was, believe. Why? Well, because he's a theologian. What do theologians care about? Doctrine, right? Right? They're intellectuals. In fact, in America, I would say, by and large, what we care about most, what we think about most when it comes to our Christianity is the information, the technicalities. We want to know stuff. You go to any Bible study that's studying the Bible and you will find that people will gauge its level of interest based on how many cool facts the leader can pull out from the scripture and tell them that they didn't know before. How many of you know how much a shekel is worth? Anybody? Nobody's ever discussed this in a Bible study? I have been in Bible studies where they spent more time discussing how much a shekel was worth than anything else they covered that day. Because we love the minutia, we love the trivia, we want to be able to win that trivial pursuit, Bible edition. We tend to be intellectuals. And so he stacks the doctrinal test right at the top. And then behind that, he puts in the obedience test because, you know, there are churches like ours that are holiness churches that believe that that your life with Christ impacts your lifestyle. There are other churches that don't necessarily feel that that's most important, so he puts that in the middle. And then the love thing, the social test, where does he put that? Way down at the bottom. And it seems like a lot of times in our churches, that's kind of the order we see things in. Well, let's make sure we get the doctrine right. And then we'll do our best to obey what it says. But boy, when it comes to loving our neighbor, it seems like we're kind of worn out by the time we get to that. And we don't quite follow through. But in his mind, that was the most important. I don't think that's the most important. 
I think we should walk with the way the writer wrote it because I believe John, as a writer, writes the way that I write. When I write sermons, I'm not trying to write a great treatise. I'm not trying to write a masterpiece. I'm not trying to do a theological document. When I write a sermon, you know what I'm writing? I'm trying to write a dialogue, which means I'm trying to have a conversation with you right now. And some of you are communicating with me because you're still awake. And some of you, not so much. But I try to write in the form of a dialogue because I want this to be a give and take of information. I'm picking up cues from you and that tells me kind of how we're going and, and where we're going. And I think John writes the same way because when you're writing a discourse or a conversation, especially to, to a group of people that you know, which John very obviously does, he calls them my little children, my brethren, my beloved, he actually calls them at one point in the text. He knows these people. He loves them. They're like his family. And so as he's writing this discourse to his family, I believe he writes what is most on his mind. The thing that came up first. Because that's the way I would do it. When I write a sermon, oftentimes I begin with the first thoughts that come to my mind and I just start writing. And then as time goes on, I'll think of other things and I fill those in. And sometimes I do go back through and reorganize them in some way. But honestly, I think John is writing first about obedience because obedience was what was the biggest thing broken in their, in their process, in their, in their fellowship. And so he begins this conversation about the first test, which is obedience. So let's take a look. First John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to cover a lot of ground, but a lot of it is kind of um, uh, re repetitive. Man, by second service, I can't find words anymore. Could you guys throw them at me if I need them? Um, we're going to find some things that are repetitive, and so we're going to skim through parts of it faster than others, but we're going to kind of stop and go here. So let's read First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 to get us started. Listen to this. He says, and we can be sure, and this is where we get the test thing, we can be sure that we know him, him meaning God, if we obey his commandments. Boy, that's the sermon right there. We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If you don't hear anything else today, highlight that in your Bible and keep it. He goes on to say this, if someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we are living in him. That is how we know, I'm sorry, we are living in him. Those who say that they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Now, I don't know about you, but that's some pretty strong language. Have you ever been in a Bible study where somebody actually had the gall to look at another person across the room and say, hey, you're talking a good game, but you're not living that out, so you're a liar. You ever been in a Bible study? That would be an exciting Bible study to be a part of, don't you think? You know, you put on the gloves halfway through and, you know, it'd be, it'd be awesome. At least it'd be real. But John goes right after it. How does he earn the right to do that? As I said before, he knows these people. They know him. He knows the struggles they're fighting, and they know that he loves them. They've been through together. You remember that whole series about real Christian community and all of those different ministries that we're supposed to visit on each other? My guess would be that they had been through much of that stuff together, and so now they have the kind of fellowship and relationship where John can call them out and say, listen, if you're doing this, you're, you're, you're a liar. And they'll go, wow, maybe we should pay attention. 
And so he uses extremely strong language. Um, if, you're, if you claim to know God but don't obey God's commandments, you're a liar and you're not living in the truth. Obedience, he says, shows how completely you love him. Obedience is a sign that you love God. He, he then kind of wraps it all up by saying, do as Jesus did. Now, I can't help but think when I read those words of Jesus' words himself, now, some of you might be wondering, is this John that's writing 1 John the same John that wrote the Gospel of John? How many of you know, have you ever read the Gospel of John? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know what I'm talking about? Some debate that issue, some go back and forth. Most people believe that it was either John, you know, John wrote the Gospel and it was probably maybe him or one of his very close followers that maybe wrote the books of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John because they seem to be writing in his name. And so it was either John or it was someone very close to him that knew his teachings. And so if we look at the book of John, we find a couple places where John actually records this very same conversation that Jesus said. In John 14, 15, John wrote these words that Jesus said. These are red letters in most Bibles. This is Jesus talking. Listen to this. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. Isn't that what John just said in this other text? Look at John chapter 15, just one chapter later, and you know, another conversation that Jesus was recorded by John. Again, red letters. Jesus said this, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. If we want to remain in Christ, then it behooves us to obey his commandments. And actually, it's kind of backwards. I said that backwards. Here's the real issue. If we remain in his love, then the effect is we will obey his commandments. It's not that we do one to achieve the other. Obedience is the sign that we are remaining in him. 1 John 2, 28, we jump ahead to kind of the second time that he introduces this whole idea. Let me read some of this for you. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. And then he goes into this whole idea of how we became God's children. Listen to this. This is important stuff. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. And that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are already God's child. Say it right now. You are already God's child. Say it. Some of you didn't say it. Some of you don't have anybody to say it to. My apologies. Listen, the moment you accept Jesus into your heart, God invites you and accepts you into his family. You're one of his children. You don't have to question that anymore. John makes it very, very sure. If you believe in Jesus, if you are obeying his commandments, you are already his child. Listen to this. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him. For we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Are you eager to see Jesus for who he really is? Boy, I am. I want to see in all the splendor and all the glory. I would imagine it's going to make a sunset look pale. 
in comparison. Don't you want to see that day? That is the hope that is before us in Christ. Not only that we will see him as he is, but that when he returns, we will become like he is. We will see him for who he is, only this time we won't be ashamed if we, if we are in him, if we're remaining in him. We will literally become like him instead. But he says, listen, if you want to enjoy that day, if you want to be a part of that, then you need to keep yourself pure. I don't know about you, but I want to be ready when God returns or when I get to go see him the other way, which none of us want to talk about. When I was a kid, there were things that we used to do when our parents would leave that would get us in trouble if they were home. In other words, I was a naughty child. How many of you can identify with that? (laughs) Um, Think of some of the things that you did. Our big thing, and this is going to sound ridiculous to some of you, but I I tapped it. Attacked. I don't even know what I was trying to say. I attended, is what I was trying to say, a, an extremely conservative Baptist school. They frowned on any sort of rock and roll. In fact, if you had a song, we, we did songs and we sang in conventions and stuff. If it had syncopation in it, they said, nope, that's of the devil, you can't sing it. My church didn't necessarily believe that way because I attended a church of God, but the school that I went to, no rock and roll whatsoever. So I started listening to Christian rock at some point and they th- said that was worse than the regular stuff. Because it's, everybody knows it's the driving beat that makes it evil. I don't agree with that, obviously. But anyway, somehow growing up, my brother and I, probably because of the school we attended, got it through our heads that my parents would hate, hate it and, and we would get in trouble if they ever heard us listening to rock music of any kind. And, I mean, during the time I was growing up, we listened to a lot of Journey, Def Leppard, all that, you know, good music, not like they have today. I, yes, I'm a grumpy old man, get over it. Um, good music, you know, um, lots of different bands. My, my son now has a playlist that's all 80s music, and that's all he listens to. I'm like, see, I told you. But uh, anyway, so every time my parents would leave, we had this giant stereo in the middle of the living room. Now, we had radios and stuff that we would quietly listen to in our room so our parents wouldn't hear because we were convinced that if they heard us listening to this, we'd get in big trouble. And, and in, the, in the living room, we had this giant stereo that my dad had bought. It wasn't abs- extreme, but it would rattle the glass on the windows, you know. And so every time my parents would drive out of the driveway, my brother would stick his head in my door. He's like, they're gone. We'd run out like we were like spies or something, and we'd start listening to this music. Shh, baby, Bob, I'm trying to talk. I got Hudson saying, hi, Poppy, as I'm trying to lead worship, and he's crying while I'm preaching. Cheapers. Anyway, so every time my parents would leave, my brother would come in, they're gone, and we'd grab our stuff. Now, we only had really one album that we'd ever bought. We used to, how many of you tape songs off the radio? Anybody do? Oh, yeah. Cassette after cassette after cassette of 90% commercials. Amen? Yeah. But anyway, we purchased one cassette tape. My brother and I, we, we set it up. He went and bought a Pat Benatar cassette from Meyer, while my mom was present in the store and he snuck around the store with the thing hidden in his coat and I'm going oh you're going to get arrested for stealing that he's like I'm not going to steal it I'm going to pay for it how are you going to do that without mom seeing it just shut up <laughs> how many of you that was your brother's answer to everything just shut up yeah anyway so I'm keeping mom busy he's checking out at the other end of the store looking all over the place gets you know shoves it I don't even know where he shoved it but he got in the car without her seeing it and we managed to get Pat Benatar home. And so from that point on, every time mom and dad would leave, man, we'd stick that thing in and we'd just go crazy. How many of you know Pat Benatar is the hardest rocker that ever lived? Not. But anyway, 
We had a ball with that, but we were convinced so much so that after a while, my conscience started getting to me, and I just didn't. I'm like, David, I don't want to listen anymore. I just know I'm going to go to hell for this. <sighs> but the thing was this. When mom and dad would pull in the driveway, it was the mad scramble, right? Down went the volume. Don't forget to take the cassette out, close it up. And by the time mom got in the house, we were sitting in our rooms doing nothing which fit because we were teenagers, you know. Funny thing was, a few years later, she mentioned to us casually that she had on more than one occasion heard the music while driving in the driveway. (laughs) And she's like, I always wondered why you guys would listen to that while we were gone. And we're like, well, we thought we'd get in trouble. She's like, I didn't care. (laughs) There was one other thing, however, that we did that she did care about. How many of you have ever burned gasoline on the cement pad in front of your dad's garage? Anybody ever? (laughs) Aaron, the Ohio State guy. It figures, yeah, me and the Ohio State guy, and another. All right, yet one time my mom went on a horseback ride. She went up the road. She was going to, we thought she was going to ride the Spears Lake Trail, which takes about four hours on a horse, and so we thought we were safe. We were watching our little brother, Ben, um, who was, I don't know, a toddler at that point, and so we decided we'd never seen gas burn before, but we'd heard it was really cool. So what did we do? We took one of Dad's gas cans and we poured out what we thought was a very small amount of gas on the cement pad, which only was about probably a foot out from under the overhang of the garage. And the moment, I I kid you not, the moment that that match hit that thing and went foof and we went, oh, I saw out of the corner of my eye my mother riding over the hill coming back home she had decided she didn't want to ride that long and was coming back home and I mean it was mad dash we were stomp trying to stomp out gasoline how many of you know that doesn't work right (laughs) never you'll never get it out and so not only that but David and I are doing a fire dance trying to get this thing out and Ben thinks it's so exciting that he's doing circles around us so we look like Indians for crying out loud it was ridiculous anyway she came back she saw we got in trouble, and the, the penalty was always doubled when we were watching our little brother. Why is that? That doesn't seem fair, does it? But anyway, we got in major trouble, but I'll never forget the feeling in the pit of my stomach. Whenever mom and dad would come home and I was doing something I shouldn't, and the sense of disappointment that I felt, that I had disappointed them, and I can only imagine if, if Jesus were to return today and if my life wasn't what it was supposed to be. And, and I know we're forgiven of our sins. And again, this is complicated stuff because scholars are still debating and will debate till the dying day and probably will never know what actually is going to happen when Jesus returns. We have little pieces of it here and there and we know some things for certain. But when Jesus returns, I do know this. That Jesus says there will be a judgment and that you will be judged, not necessarily for what you've done because your sins are forgiven, but you'll be judged based on the relationship that you have with him. And somehow, according to John, there is a possibility within that that if we have not lived the kind of life that we were supposed to and maintain the relationship that we're supposed to with God, there is a sense in which when God returns, we will not be ready when he returns. Jesus also spoke of this when he talked about keeping your lamp Lamps trimmed and burning. Do you remember that passage where Jesus talks about, you know, we need to be ready for the bridegroom when he returns. You don't want him to come back when we're not ready. And the whole point of that is is this, that when Jesus returns, we need to be right with him. Otherwise, there will be something 
of disappointment. And I don't want to disappoint my Heavenly Father any more than I wanted to disappoint my earthly mother. I want to be right with Him. Someday, Jesus will return and we will become like Him. And in light of this future hope, we should keep ourselves pure just as He is pure. Very quickly, let me get through the last few verses here. Everyone, verse 4, who sins is breaking God's law for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away your sins and there is no sin in Him. Anyone who continues to live in sin, in Him, I'm sorry, will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know Him or understand who He is. Dear children, I love it when He says that. (laughs) Dear children, in other words, my friends, my family, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Now the love other believers part is a circle back on one of the other tests that we're going to talk about in a few weeks. But he makes it very plain. It's very clear that in a world filled with confusing messages and ideologies and teachers that were trying to lead people astray, that the proof is in the living. It's what you live out. It's not what you say. It's what you do. Your life will bear evidence to what is happening in your heart. And if your life is filled with continual and ongoing sin that you feel no compulsion to do anything about, then what John is saying is that there is a problem in the relationship that you have with Jesus. Because if you're living in the light as he is in the light, darkness will not be a part of your life. Again, it's not about cleaning yourself up to make yourself worthy. It's about the Spirit of God living inside of us and creating the kind of fruit that the Spirit brings. Remember Jesus' conversation about trees? (laughs) Good trees don't bear bad fruit. Again, I don't want you to go legalistic here because a lot of people do. It's not about trying to rein in every single sin. What it's about is trying to establish a lifestyle where when the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, we respond with repentance and we walk in the other direction. And we do it no more. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. If you'd like to arrange an interview with my wife, you can find out all the ways. Is my heart continually longing to be more like Jesus every day? Absolutely. And the sin that I find in my life from time to time (laughs) breaks my heart. But when God shows me that sin, my responsibility is not to say, well, it happened again, I guess I might as well just give in. My responsibility is to say, God, help me to never go this way again. I need more of you so that we can flush that out. I believe John gave them a test for two reasons. He first and foremost gave them this test and the other two tests, which we're going to study the next few weeks, to determine, first of all, where they stood before God. Are, Are their hearts right? Are they living in Christ? Are they abiding in God? And the second reason was so that they could look at the teachers that kept trying to lead them astray and evaluate their life based on 
what they were saying to determine, is God living in them or are they just people who can play a crowd? (laughs) And let me tell you something, this is necessary today because there are a lot of pastors in a lot of churches on a lot of TV shows and on a lot of podcasts who can say the most beautiful things and sound so incredibly godly and spiritual that it sounds like God himself is speaking to you. But when you dig a little deeper and you look into their lives, you find out that their walk doesn't match their talk. And that, my friends, should immediately throw up a red flag. Do you get me? Any Christian leader or any secular leader that claims to be Christian that is not doing what the Bible says, where you do not see progress in the direction of them moving toward Jesus, has an issue with their relationship with God. And you should be, be weary of them. But first and foremost, we need to look inside. Where are you at? Did something change when you accepted Jesus into your life? Because it should. If nothing changed when you accepted Jesus, then there's a very real possibility that that maybe you got God, but he hasn't got you yet. And maybe you accepted his forgiveness and and his salvation, and and maybe you you felt penitent and, and you did all of that, but there's a real possibility that maybe you haven't quite done the second part of that, which is to say to him, I want you to be the Lord of my life, not just my Savior, not just the one who who saves me from hell, but I want you to be the Lord and master of my life. I want to become more like you each day. And if that's where you are today, I, I would love for you to spend a few moments, quiet moments, even as I pray, just renewing that commitment or making that commitment for the first time to let God rule in your life in such a way that your life begins to look like Jesus. Let's pray together. I'll, I'll pray for you and I encourage you to examine your heart as I pray. God, Once again, I thank you for the patience of these people. Working exegetically through a text is is sometimes difficult and maybe not quite as exciting as sometimes we'd like it to be, but the truth is the truth. And unless we mine into Scripture and discover what it says, we will never know the whole truth. Father, I pray right now that you would help us to take these words of 1 John and wrestle with them. To some, this may sound extremely legalistic and it may seem to set a standard that is impossible to reach and and I would encourage you to, to put that discussion deep in their hearts so that they wrestle with it until they can find a way to, to allow it to make sense. And I pray that you would give them a desire to, to talk to other people, whether it's myself or, or someone else that they know that is farther along in their journey with Christ until they can come to terms with what John is saying. Father, there there may be some that will argue with my words. And I've tried to be very careful to make sure that my words are the Scripture's words. And so their argument is not with me. It's with the Word of God. And if we believe it to be true, then we need to live under it and allow it to discipline us and guide us. And your Word says that if we are following you, then sin should be decreasing and disappearing from our life on a continuing basis. Help us to find that and move in the direction of Jesus each day. God, be with us as we walk from this place and for those that are wrestling, help them to find answers. For those that um, have never received you as their Savior, I pray that you would give them the courage to do that, that we all might see you once again one day. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, 
Amen. Just reaffirm it to your neighbor. You're a child of God. Just go ahead and say that, and then you can be dismissed.